So today, uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Marian Joku. Uh, Dr. Njoku is an associate professor of anesthesia and critical care and has been here for, she tells me, over 20 years. And uh, with that uh, experience comes a level of expertise that is matched by few. And uh, so she's going to talk to us today on postoperative ICU management. Okay. All right. Well, welcome. Uh, nice to see you all. It's been a while since I've given a critical care lecture, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, my disclaimer is that I am critical care fellowship trained, and I was a SICU attending from 1992 to 2009, and I'm still recovering. And those who know me, <laughs> yes, Don. So <laughs> But anyway, it was one of my favorite years of time ever spent here at University of Maryland, and still in my favorite things. And I said to someone jokingly that if they open a transplant ICU, I'll consider taking care of the liver patients only. But anyways, but, but, there's, uh, but there's still hope eventually. Um, so um, the things that I will cover today, when I first had this uh, request from, from Mike, it was a little bit of a challenge to figure out what the content might be, but I thought through... First of all, I was glad it snowed on February, in February, so then I had time to rethink what I was going to say. And then after it snowed, I had to really rethink what I might say. And then I actually looked through the things that mattered every time I took care of a patient and whenever I handed off the patient to now my ICU colleagues in the ICU. So this is an outline based on that uh, without going into, um, and it will go into detail as we go forward. So some of the things that I will cover or discuss what's out there is about handoffs and transitions of care. Um, uh, what happens in that process, including the records review. Um, of course, because I'm an anesthesiologist, I must mention pain management, agitation, and delirium. Um, prophylaxis and risk reduction is another component of uh, part of the postoperative ICU management. Um, and again, because I'm an anesthesiologist, we have to say something about the difficult airway. Um, there are things here about fluid management, early recognition of postoperative complications, and then, of course, how do we decide who gets into the ICU and why. So, because how many of you staff the ICUs? As trainees, fellows, faculty? Okay, most people here. Okay, then, so hopefully you'll like this as much as I enjoyed writing this one. So top 10 reasons for post-operative ICU bed requests. I'll take one response from the audience. What's the reason that you get by phone? I like that one. Name another one from this side of the room. Another possibility from this side of the room? What's that again? Severe sepsis. Okay, let's see what I put on my list. So number one is unstable. No qualifiers, just the word unstable. Can you get this patient in here? They're unstable. Okay, this is like Dave's top ten, okay? Okay, number nine is too sick for the floor. You get that all the time. Uh, number eight is in need of intensive monitoring. And that's all, and usually it's a poor little intern calling because they're told by someone else to call someone else without the data to decide what needs to be done. Number seven is no other unit will take this patient. And that's a very common one when, as we can see, we see it happening in the OR. I see the OR side, I see the ICU side, and I, again, I used to be the recipient of the information on the other end. Number six is they need intensive treatment whatever that means. We don't know what that is, but there's a reason why they have to come to you, and it's vague, and when you see the patient, you have to figure it out. Um, then there's number five, step down is full. 
So there's no place else to put this patient, so they want you to have them. Number four, uh, they have care and immediate intervention that cannot be provided outside of the ICU. And as you can see, some of these are actually repeating themselves. Number three, PACU is full, so there's no place else to put them again. Number two is doctor always does it this way, so they want you to take this patient. And does anyone know what number one is? Okay, that's a close one. Okay. Any other takers? Okay, that's a good one. Okay, any other ones? Unwilling to exit. I like that one even better. Okay, okay. here's my favorite top one. I don't know, anesthesia said so. So that's my favorite one. So <laughs> no one gets the answer, but somehow the mystery of what's wrong with this patient is locked in the anesthesia box somewhere in the operating room. So hopefully I'll bring some clarity to some of these reasons as we go through it. So um, to start off with handoffs and transition of care. So postoperative patient handovers or handovers in any context in the healthcare system has received an extensive amount of attention. Uh, some of it has to do with what's coming out of patient safety and quality. A lot of it has to do with what is just good medicine. And it's unfortunate that they've put dollar signs around what's just good medicine. But this is where we are right now. And they've put quality markers around it. And they're looking very closely at how in an institution such as this, or even the smallest system to the largest system, have consistency in how they carry out this process. So the first step in even getting a patient to the ICU is what is that handoff of information that has to occur when that's happening. I think there are many challenges to doing this. One is that the OR team, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, and the OR uh, nursing team are simultaneously, when they decide this patient has to come to the ICU, doing transport, monitoring, maybe continuing the complexity of the patient care. The patient may be more compromised than average. And the condition under which the patient is is so detail intense that the, what that is that has to happen to share that information gets lost in transition and translation. Um, the other thing is that in transport, there are often many things going on with the patient at the same time. The vasoactive infusions, the assisted ventilation, there may be ongoing transfusion support and resuscitation that's occurring. Then in the receiving unit, my, my friends from the ICU, from the SICU, know that it's busy and chaotic. As soon as you bring the patient in, there's an interruption for a patient in another bed, in another site. The same person has multiple patient responsibilities at the same time, and they're trying to put two patients on the same screen while they're trying to get in one and take on the next one that's coming. Um, and then the team that's receiving the patient either... Um, and I'll say this from being the ICU receiver as well as the deliverer, there's already a, as with the ten, top 10, a preconceived notion of what that patient is. So there's either attention to detail, inattention to detail, varying levels of attention to detail because we've already predetermined what's important because something has been shared that may or may not be accurate about what's happening with that patient. Um, and then the staff that's receiving, we see in our units now that many of the receivers have many disciplines. So respiratory therapy wants to know what's going on so they can make a plan. Uh, the ICU uh, resident and fellow team have to know what's going on so they can make a proper plan. The NPs, the RNs, everyone at the bedside, everyone who's there has to know what's happening. And we're synchronously receiving the patient, stabilizing, assessing, making care plans, and our attention is varied while all of that is happening. So again, in the handoff, things are lost. Um, and again, I'm not making a case for just one style of handoff, but this is where the complexity of information is uh, lost. So um, again, in my exploration of this topic, I found in uh, 2012 in anesthesia and analgesia, there was an article where our, a bunch of folks from 
uh, anesthesiology at uh, Duke University looked at, can we make post-operative patient handovers safety, safer? And they looked, did a systematic review of the literature in relationship to this topic. So some of the strategies that they recommended for a safe and effective post-operative handovers, um, they looked at all these uh, uh, many studies in the literature and determined that uh, some of the things that help with this process are preparation of the monitors uh, and alarms and equipment before the patient arrival. And I think we do a fantastic job of that here. Once the team that's receiving has some forewarning that the patient is coming, the PACU prepares, the SICU prepares, the CSICU prepares, any of the units that the patient is coming to, those who have those thought processes often prepare in advance to have some semblance of readiness before the patient gets there. I think that we also have to think about setting aside a time for handover communication uh, because often many tasks are occurring synchronously and the data is lost. But again, in the literature, this was identified as one of the things to consider when this is occurring. Um, all relevant members of the operating room and post-operative receiving teams should be present synchronously. I know often when I deliver liver transplant patients, those who know me from that, when I drop off those patients, many things are happening at the same time. I've already pre-called the bedside nurse because I want to let her know what to be ready with, but then the ICU team of physicians and NPs then has to hear the data again. But it doesn't hurt for the whole team to hear everything one more time so that if there are various levels of questions because some pre-information has been delivered, that that's helpful. And then uh, supporting documentation must be delivered to the ICU. That includes the lab tests, the anesthesia record, whatever records allow the team to launch into that immediate episode of care that's occurring as the patient arrives. And then one of the things that's recommended that we don't quite use here yet are the use of protocols to standardize the processes and a formal team and handover training. We do some to some extent in a spotty way, but not most consistently throughout the system. Um, so uh, post-operative information transfer, some of the things consistently identified in the literature that are helpful. Um, of course, everyone knows the patient demographics, the reasons for which the patient is coming, things about the anesthesia information. I would say the type of anesthetic, the anesthetic course, any complications that are noted, uh, fluids, of course, that are administered, that are taken in and taken out because they're referring to the, the person, one of the authors of this work is a cardiac anesthesiologist. Of course, they wrote transesophageal echo on here, but, you know, everybody doesn't get a transesophageal echo. And then, of course, the surgical information, the surgical course and complications, uh, things related to anything that occurred in the operating room that would help the ICU team do what they need to do to launch the patient into their next level of care. And then, of course, discussion of an appropriate care plan. I think the worst thing when I was receiving a patient in the ICU was that no one had an idea of where the patient's going in their care next. One is because the patient was too sick, and second was no one knew where to start, and third was no one thought about it. And so I think thinking about it and sharing that information so that it's appropriate to, to get the patient on the best course in the next stage is important. Um, so they came up with these other uh, templates of information, team information, knowing who's participating, who are you talking to when that information comes? Is it the doc at the bedside, the doc who handed off to someone else, the transport person, the technician? So who is the information sharing person I think is also important. Knowing who the surgeons are and who the anesthesia, inf anesthesia providers were for the case in case there's a question after the, after the delivery is complete. And then some of the other patient condition things here are more broken out here about the history and the past medical history of the patient. Um, the other things related to the anesthesia course are spelled out here. The surgical information, which I didn't say enough about, the surgical course, 
the site and information, including dressings, tubes, drains, and packing, significant intraoperative events. I know most of you should, if you've been in the sick, you know by now that my surgeon colleagues, when I do, I'll say for again, a, a cat catastrophic case, they're concentrating on the surgery. The information rests with the other people who are taking care of the patient in the room. So the information is a shared set of things. What did the surgeons perceive as the issues as they were taking care of the patient, even though they are very much concentrating on a very specific component of care, and then those who are supporting the surgeons while that's occurring. That data, both pieces of data, are so essential to getting the patient through the next stage. And then, of course, knowing the patient's current status at the point of delivery. And then other things uh, in the care plan, thinking about what's anticipated for recovery and, and what the problems might be, what's the clear post-operative management plan. Like, like when I deliver a patient, I'll often say, I'll give an idea of when I think the patient should be weaned from the ventilator and how sick they were before we started to make that decision make sense moving forward. And usually the team takes it into consideration. Um, if, um, if there's a plan for monitoring, if added things need to be added into the care, or is there enough, is there a need for blood products? For the surgical teams, how to manage the tubes and the drains, um, or if there's a positioning issue that's specifically related to the surgery that was done. And then if there's anything needed in terms of plan for emergency care, family contacts, the important thing is that sometimes the delivering team is the only team that actually knows that information with clarity. Uh, these are other things that they identified in the literature that would be important. So I think that uh, if, if I had to say anything that came out of this, um, this review of the literature, I think it's identifying and defining mutual endpoints and targets for resuscitation and support of the patient once that handoff is in play and once it's complete. I think if I had to say anything about postoperative handoff, as much as we would like to say that there should be templates and formats, this is the key to what should happen at the end of that process. Okay, other things that are important when we receive the patient in the ICU would be the, uh, I call it the post-operative critical care physical examination, which is quite a bit focused. Um, everyone knows how to do these, except they're added things because they're often surgical patients. So the wounds, the incisions, the dressings, the drains, the lines, any complications related to the care of those things and what you have in place in order to initiate the care that's been offered already. And then the other part that I think is important is also an opportunity to review the patient medical care record. So um, I think it's important to at least see what's documented in the surgery uh, post-operative note. Now there's a requirement. No one can skip doing this. Uh, the anesthesia record, luckily here at Maryland now, we're all electronic for the majority of anesthesia records. So it's readable and it doesn't look like hieroglyphics anymore. The medical record for our patients um, is, um, do, did any of you know when we were writing medical records? No, you all, all came after we transitioned. So you're lucky. So uh, I could read my record. Um, medical records, uh, make, having an opportunity to look back in HPF or any other databases or power chart where the information is, uh, the hospital course that's often in the paper record now since we're not fully electronic here at Maryland, their medication list, and determining, I think, the patient's pre- and post pre-procedure and pre-hospitalization baseline. I, one of my jokes when I used to staff the ICU was, where does this patient belong? And the team would say, out of the bed, in the bed, uh, on the floor, standing, sitting, in this bed, in the unit. And I'd say, no, they belong at home. And so they would always look at me like, what do you mean by that? I said, well, then our goal is to figure out how to fixate our care so that it launches the patient to get home. No matter what we're doing here, the goal is home or wherever they were before they started. So thinking about their pre-procedure and pre-hospitalization baseline is important. Otherwise, the focus of where you're headed with the patient is useless. 
that's a little bit strong, but it's true. But I, I would say think about that at all times when you see the patient. Because the way we see them, they're all tangled in a web of lines and tubes, and we don't recognize that this person might have just walked in, and now we have a problem. So looking at the um, uh, surgical record, I, again, I just circled some of the parts, knowing that all of you know how to read this. The uh, procedure note, the estimated blood loss, the fluids, and any complications or any other findings that the surgical team has identified as the issues that they needed to document in the record. For the anesthesia record, it's a little bit more complicated. Because it's electronic, it comes out at least 11 pages long. But we try to deliver the short version to you at the bedside. And you can eventually look in and see the rest. But knowing what the surgical procedure is as it is logged, if the anesthesiology attending uh, documents their findings, they'll often summarize the most critical findings for the patient. If there's any issues related to the airway, sometimes we know, sometimes we don't, depending upon how the patient came to us. It just so happened that this one of my favorite patients came with the airway already in. Uh, looking at the record of what medicines were delivered in the patient's care. Um, so I think that uh, seeing um, here, this one is small, but just if you looked at the template, you would recognize all of this, what meds were given on the left-hand side, how often they were given, and often the pace at which they were administered tells you probably where you are in the resuscitation or the sequence of care. That's, so if you see a bunch of epiboluses, you have your answer right there very quickly. Um, what, what fluids are administered to the patient, anything that's related to gas exchange or the vital signs here, you can see the nadir and temperature down to 34.2. I can guarantee you that's reperfusion of the liver at that, on that patient. But some of the things that tell you what's going on with the patient may be uh, hidden in this lovely box called the anesthesia record. And here, don't ask me how to read what all these dark marks are. Sometimes the computer comes up with some of these formats for it. But I know where the heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory parameters are. And you can trace most of these through here. And even the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the numerical documentation, I think, is sometimes easier to read for me than the hatch marks that are created by the computer. So looking at the anesthesia record for the, an eye into some of the details uh, may be helpful to you as you are making a decision for what that care needs to be for the patient. So um, pain, agitation, and delirium, the big three, P-A-D. So now the patient has been, there's a decision to bring them to the ICU. There's been a handoff in the care. There's been a records review and an assessment of all the details. There's been an alignment of what the goals are for the patient's care. And now this poor patient is here warranting our care. So pain, agitation, and delirium, I'd say for almost every patient I bring, as they begin to emerge from their anesthetic care, pain becomes a big noticeable factor. Ag delirium sometimes sets in because the patient now is disoriented from the place where they started their care to the new place that they've arrived and the new set of care providers with a different set of noise, squeaks, and, and pings is occurring in the same space. And then agitation as a consequence maybe of the delirium and the pain, or our perception of agitation because the patient can't express what is going on. So um, I found this that I hope most of you have already seen, uh, the clinical practice guidelines for the management of pain, agitation, and delirium in adult patients in the intensive care unit. And some of our esteemed University of Maryland teammates are on here. Dan Hur is on here as part of the multidisciplinary team that looked at this uh, body of literature to come up with suggestions for how to address these issues in patient care. I think the biggest thing, of course, all of you know, always treat pain. Agitation, considered as part of your assessment. Have objective scales for how you measure and address some of these things, and objective measurements for how you determine what those continued uh, care uh, care items are. And then looking also at um, scales to identify 
whether the patient has delirium or just pain or agitation. So this is just a, a, um, a copy or a printout of the uh, pocket card that came out of this review of the literature to create this body of information that uh, the collaborators did. And it very simply summarizes what's, uh, in, what's important about pain, agitation, and delirium, that pain assessment should be routinely performed in all ICU patients, uh, that it's also important to detect or to measure and assess the depth and quality of sedation. There should be routinely assessed in patients, and there should be a routine plan to give patients the appropriate things like spontaneous breathing trials, getting them out of bed on time, all the things that you already know that are part of their care. But I thought that this article that summarizes the literature very cleanly summarizes the information related to that, as well as the use of the scales and the, and the methods that we use to address and assess these issues in patient care. So I won't painfully go through this, but know that it's available to you in the most recent issue of, uh, one of the more recent issues of critical care medicine. And then there's also a summary of the guidelines that were developed that came out of this uh, multidisciplinary group that uh, looked at this body of literature. And then there's also guidelines for implementation of pain, agitation, and sedation protocols, a lot of which we use to some degree in a number of our units already, but I think it's good to see where some of the source for some of this information is and where it comes from. Okay, so speaking of the next area, uh, prophyla so now our patient is in. We've determined that we've treated their pain. They don't have much agitation. We're thinking about delirium, but they're doing pretty good. So now we need to think about risk reduction in the perioperative period. So in taking this patient, uh, prophylaxis and risk reduction, thinking about skip in the ICU. So um, there are a certain number of uh, factors that are so much a part of our order set now in the, in the ICU that we probably don't think of it the same way anymore. It's just become, did you put in the orders? Did you put in the standard orders? But they're actually things that are very much under the focus of institutions, of hospitals, of regulatory bodies, and also as marked as quality measures of our care on top of all the other care that we provide to our patients. So everyone knows all these uh, acronyms, uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, uh, venous thromboembolism, stress ulcer disease, prophylactic antibiotic, and I wrote discontinuation in the perioperative period, uh, uh, pressure ulcer reduction, delirium and agitation, as I've hinted at, has become a focus, and then glycemic control. So these are some of the major areas of perioperative ICU risk reduction that have become sort of a part of our standard order set for a lot of our patients in their care. And so initiating these parameters for our patients, of course, is a sensible move in planning what's appropriate for each of the patients that we're considering it for. Uh, the interesting thing is that a lot of this now has moved into other realms, as I was hinting, the National Hospital Inpatient Quality Reporting Measures. This is a combined effort to achieve identity among the common national hospital performance measures, which include the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, from which we have heard way too much in the last few weeks, and from the Joint Commission. And the things that are mostly under their purview, as we've been hearing about how we tend to, I call it protocolizing our care, are the management of acute MI, which you can guess that some of these things absolutely apply within the ICU care, uh, heart failure, pneumonia, the surgical care improvement project, where I'll spend a little bit more time discussing that, um, um, this is children's asthma care, uh, CAC, venous thromboembolism, and stroke. So some of the guidelines for which we intervene actually come out of this body of information that choose 
for us, together with our input, what might be the optimal approach to care when these things arise in the patients that we're responsible for. So the Surgical Care Improvement Project is a national quality partnership, again, of organizations interested in improving surgical care significantly by reducing surgical complications. And among those surgical complications that were chosen, there are so many, but the ones that specifically pertain to ICU management and perioperative care, I've circled some of them here. Uh, One is the discontinuation of prophylactic antibiotics 24 hours after surgery end time. Now, most of us know that the more complex patients are coming to the ICU, so the decision to discontinue prophylactic antibiotics is a more weighty decision than just it's 24 hours, and there is an allowance within the SKIP measures to allow that possibility of assessment. The other one is glycemic control in... um, cardiac surgery patients. Um, And again, they chose cardiac surgery patients because that was the group they were focusing on, but everyone knows that perioperative glycemic control has various parameters around it that are sensible or appropriate for the patient population that we're responsible for. The other one is the use of uh, urinary catheters. And again, an exception has been made for what occurs in some of the patients in the ICU settings, but thinking about how that links into the SKIP measures, this is another one of them. And then venous thromboembolism appropriateness of care within, within the perioperative period is another component of the surgical care improvement project. But I listed these here just to highlight those that link into what goes on in the, in the ICU when these patients get to the ICU after surgery. Some are sensibly applicable and some need further addressing about whether how appropriate it is for the patient that comes to the ICU. So just to talk a little bit about the uh, throm- uh, antithrombotic therapy and prevention of thrombosis, this is a uh, summary that came out of uh, CHEST Uh, which came from the American College of Chest Physicians, uh, which provided the most extensive analysis of this information that I've ever seen in my life. But, But it's very, very good and very specific to the types of patients that we that would come under our care. And sometimes, and it's of course more than 40 pages long, but I want to show you the easy way of looking at it. So there's also this ACP uh, guidance document. So ACP, uh, ACCP 9, antithrombosis, antithrombosis therapy guidelines, where you can literally click to the type of patient that you're interested in thinking about prophylaxis for and come exactly under the guidelines. It is the coolest document. This is, my, this is what happens when I, there was a snow day for me. And so, um, so under the table of contents, you can go to the various um, um, areas for what is appropriate for the patient population that you have a concern for. And so some of this, has, again, has been pre-templated for us because we're at the lovely University of Maryland, but this is the source for that information. It was recently updated in 2012. And just to uh, show uh, those things that pertain to the patients that we take care of uh, in our settings, so the guidelines that would apply most uh, most to us were those would be those for orthopedic and non-orthopedic surgical patients, prevention of venous thromboembolism, and then also for those patients who specifically need antithrombotic therapy peri, um, uh, perioperatively. And there are guidelines that are specific to that in here, and I will not go over them because, as you will see, this is how extensive they are. But again, it's a very well-written document, takes into account a lot of the exceptions to some of the guidelines, a lot of the appropriateness for things. There's been some argument a little bit back and forth in the literature about what makes sense overall. And even those in the Surgical Care Improvement Project had to change their guidelines because this document came out after the SKIP guidelines for VTE came out. 
But I think it's a wonderful resource for anyone in critical care because of the nature and the quality with which they delved into this information to prepare it for our use. So a few moments about uh, management of the airway. And I chose just specifically the difficult airway as opposed to just the average airway where you'll make a decision in the ICU for their care. So um, management of the difficult airway and planning for extubation can sometimes be a challenge because um, when, uh, when the patient is delivered to the ICU, others, others say they use very simple words together. The patient was a difficult airway. Does anyone know what that means? Does anyone know what it might mean? So, so, it's a, so everyone knows something's wrong, but I don't know exactly what that is, but I know I should be a little bit careful with whatever I decide on this patient. So, and that, and it, that's a sensible, that's a common sense way of thinking about it, but there actually is a definition for thinking about what, how to approach this. So it happened that um, in anesthesiology in February 2013, there was a practice guideline for management of the difficult airway. There are algorithms within anest that rest very heavily within anesthesiology for management of the difficult airway. But luckily, in the last, I'd say, three to four years, the ASA, American Society of Anesthesiologists, has been very closely looking at the practice guidelines that they defined way back in 2000s, early 2000s, when they thought this was a good idea to do this. And they're updating it up to the current practice. So they're taking all these guidelines, this one's from 2002, and updating it up to the current science and knowledge and what's available out in the literature based upon what's published. And everyone knows there's varying qualities from those things that are published, but it's good to know that there are others who are thinking about this for us so we can use the concepts to gauge uh, how we may plan for the care of the patients that we have. So a difficult airway is defined as the clinical situation in which a conventionally trained anesthesiologist, I don't know what that means, experiences difficulty with face mask ventilation of the upper airway and or difficulty with tracheal intubation or both. So they tried to, this group, this uh, task force tried to come up with a definition for what this might mean so there's some consistency in how we talk about what we're referring to. And the difficult airway, as everyone knows, represents a complex interaction between patient factors. The patient today that's okay may not be a patient that's okay a few days from now or a few minutes from now, depending upon what else is occurring with the patient. And an interaction between uh, the clinical setting, so the optimal conditions for securing the airway in the OR may be very different in the ICU or in the true or in any other setting where the patient may present themselves, and also, of course, the varying skills of the practitioner, even within the same specialty or within various specialties, depending upon the experience or the recognition of the variation in the patient's care. So um, how would one assess a difficult airway? I think it's important to at least know what the history has been beforehand, medical, surgical, anesthetic factors, or anything that is documented that indicates the words difficult airway. Because most people sort of know what they're talking about. It's just like knowing quality. Do I know quality when I see it? Sort of. And then the same thing with an airway. I know what I see when I see it, but I want to be able to share it in a way that others would recognize what I see. Um, the um, airway, phys airway and physical examination, sometimes there are features in the patient that can predict that their problem is brewing, will occur if the conditions intersect at the same point in time. And then looking at the documentation, what, what does the anesthesia record say about the challenges to securing the airway? If there's an emergency airway management record or any record of the care that was done. And then the appropriateness of the handoff that says what happened to the patient before they got to the point that they're in. 
So some of the uh, physical exam features that may be suggestive of a difficult airway, uh, the airway exam component that's identified uh, on the left-hand side, and then a table of some non-reassuring factors is on the right-hand side. So if the patient has relatively long incisors is one thing, if they have a prominent overbite. Um, some, some of these features have to do with the examination of the airway more specifically. The thyromental distance is another one. Um, I think that most of the patients that we'll see in the ICU may already have their airway secured, so the challenges to looking at the patient this way are definitely there. But hearing from others what is in the record or seeing what's in the record may give an indicator of what to think about. Um, and other factors to consider when thinking about extubating a patient who already has a known difficult airway is what was the surgery? What is the patient's condition and which direction is the condition headed in? And what are the skills of those at the bedside who have to make a decision about when or when not to either intervene to secure or intervene to remove the airway device that's in place? And then um, I think that it's very important because I think we do a reasonable job uh, overall from my impressions of of, of dealing with uh, the situations with, that come up with patients is that most of the time, I think most units are very much in tune with, let's call everyone and have them available just in case this doesn't work out, my plan doesn't work out. And then uh, thinking about also the short-term availability and use of devices as a guide for expedited reintubation. You'll sometimes hear the OTO or the oral surgery team saying, we're gonna bring a fiber optic scope and we're gonna pull back the tube, we're gonna inspect the airway, and then we're gonna decide if it's appropriate to extubate this patient based upon one how they breathe, two, what, how the airway looks, and three, what happens once we do take it out, I'll be able to go right back in with some challenge or with some thought process ahead of time and planning. And then I can honestly say that sometimes, just to add in a, an anesthesiologist's perspective, even though this group recommended the use of supraglottic conduits, when the airway is lost in the perioperative surgical ICU setting, most of the time it is so edematous that even supraglottic airways don't work. So thinking about whether it's appropriate or not to even make the decision to extubate is really the better decision, and optimizing the conditions around the patient is probably, to my eye, the best option, rather than saying, oh, I've got an LMA, let's just go ahead, because it may not work out at all. And then the other thing I think to think about is early planning to involve those who can create a surgical airway when it is appropriate or necessary to do so, that that doesn't create a delay. I hope none of you will ever take care of a patient who has an anoxic brain injury from loss of an airway. It is the most, I'll say personally, disgusting thing I've ever done in my life, just because there's an injury that you can't do anything about once it's happened. So the key is don't let it happen. That's my only suggestion. All right, so uh, fluid management. Of course, this is a source of debate every single day. Which patient? Okay, don't name them. I know which service. And so <laughs> the ICU team looks at the patient and thinks it's the right decision. The OR team Surgeon, surgical colleagues of mine will look at the patient and say they got enough in the OR. But everybody knows the patient is evolving from the moment they leave the OR where the anesthesiologist is making every single minute-to-minute -minute decision about how much fluid that patient gets. It is not a static process. And the surgical injury itself, I'm not calling it an injury in a negative way, is a, not a static process. It's an evolving process. So often the decision for fluid management is a source of much consternation in every setting. So uh, volume assessment and fluid management uh, is the thing. So the challenges are the patients are always positive immediately postoperatively. One is the decisions of what to give, how much to give, are made in a dynamic situation while the patient is, I'll use a strong word, open. 
where you can see what's happening and make a direct determination of what the needs are. And then when the patient gets to, uh, gets to their next stage of care, we're all estimating blood loss. It's everywhere. Blood's on sponges, blood's in canisters, blood's where you can't see it. And so we're, at best, our estimates are not that good about what the real losses are. And unfortunately, those who take care of the patients next start to see what has been unmasked because the dynamic process of the losses has changed. There are also evaporative and extravascular losses that can't be accounted for the same way in a different setting. And of course, continued losses depending upon what the wound is like. And I think that the biggest interplay is what the patient's baseline cardiovascular, pulmonary, and renal function is to determine what the best choice is. I don't have the best answers for this, but um, we'll look at this. So, And the effects of temperature and vascular tone also have an influence. So if you bring a patient up that's cold and vasoconstricted, I'll pick an aorta, a major, major abdominal aortic operation. As they warm up and their vascular tone changes, their fluid requirements are nothing like they were more than just 30 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, an hour ago. And if you don't support the patient, and I don't mean with levofed, they don't get to where they're supposed to be in the next stage of their care. So I found this. So something, current opinion in, uh, in critical care uh, done in 2012. And it just so happened, it's always fun to find people. Thomas Higgins was one of my fellowship co-directors when I was at Cleveland Clinic. So it was nice to see. He's at Bay State right now. But he it happened to see his name on this. This wasn't why I found it. It just happened to have his name on it. And I thought he was absolutely brilliant when he was my teacher. And so the biggest thing that I found out of this article is that clinical practice is both art and science. So that means I don't have an answer for fluid management. Okay, that's so we'll go on and I'll add in a thing or two. So the hardest thing in the summary thing that they identified is that SICU patients have limited physiologic reserve, and I agree with this completely, and uh, the derangements of homeostasis and organ dysfunction have a large interplay in what's happening. Goal-directed therapy may avoid hypo and hypervolemia, and I'll come to what uh, goal-directed therapy may involve, and considering the use of functional parameters with some caveats, recognizing that all of the functional parameters that we may use may not be perfect in all the patient population that we deal with. So pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, flow-based cardiac output, using other devices, but using the devices in a way that meaningfully reinterprets the information so you can use it moving forward. Not saying that it, these devices by themselves are 100% answer to what's going on. There is no replacement for your judgment and your sensibility. And then reversible volume challenge maneuvers may give an idea of where a person stands with their fluid status. And then the fluid choice and selection, just remember that strong ion difference may be important, meaning in this article is very cute. They wrote abnormal saline, which I thought was a cute comment, so <laughs> meaning that there's nothing normal about it. And then there was this uh, other uh, review article regarding resuscitation fluids that was in the New England Journal of Medicine that's being referenced quite a bit now because of the quality in which these authors looked at the information. And I thought the most helpful things from here, even though it's not readable, but it's available uh, by, the, by looking up the reference, they uh, documented what the construct is of all the various fluids that we have and what's in them and what the, um, what the fluid composition and electrolyte composition is, uh, pH and osmolality, the things that are important to making decisions about uh, our patients. And then the, their conclusion uh, recommendations were that fluids should be administered with the same caution as any other intravenous drug and I couldn't agree more, that fluid resuscitation is a, a component of a complex physiologic process. 
Fluid requirements change in time, and I've been hinting at some of those times when the points change. And then uh, specific considerations should apply to different categories of patients. There is some literature out there that says that thoracic surgery patients that get pulmonary congestion don't do well. And so thinking about that in the context of what you're choosing makes sense. A bleeding patient, bleeding should be stopped. That's very sensible advice. So they have uh, other recommendations in here that make sense and some comments about the use of normal saline in some of our patients as a long-term resuscitation fluid. And I do think it's important to recognize postoperative complications. So now the patient's in the unit. How do we recognize them? One is linking with the surgical team with what they think they may be looking for linking with all those who delivered the patient to what might be the issues that might arise over time. And I think there's not enough to be said about performing the initial survey and addressing and looking at what we think when we see the patient might be the issues that arise. And then, of course, reassessing, reassessing. Okay, I said it one more time, and reassessing. So the patient is not a one-time drop-off. You have to come back, see whether what you did or what you left is as you left it, come back again, see whether it's the same way as you left it, that's how you find the postoperative complications. It's easy to read a book and figure out what it might be, but until you see the patient, you don't know what that actually is. So um, my last uh, favorite topic in this outline is allocation of resources, decision for planned and unplanned ICU admissions after surgery. So, the, uh, so I think the hardest thing is because in an environment of limited resources, it's hard to determine who actually has to come in. As, as my um, opening list was of the top 10 reasons for ICU admission, there actually are criteria around how we know who might benefit from ICU care. So there are planned ICU admissions because of the nature of the surgical procedure or patient comorbidities. And then there's unplanned ICU admissions because something changed in the course of care that warrants our attention. There are some surgical factors associated with poor postoperative outcome that may factor more into why we might want a patient into the ICU. So those with advanced age, those with multiple comorbidities, if the procedure is an emergency and the ability to assess or address the pre operative conditions was not there, meaning there's an active MI in play, and you still had to go to the OR and fix the artery that was, I call it, broken, then you have to, that patient has to come to an ICU setting where the care would be more suitable to their needs. And then also if the hot surgical complexity warrants the watchful eye of those who are all here who know how to do that best. So I thought, I found this, and I thought it was pretty cool, that someone thought about developing an APGAR score for surgery. Has anyone heard of this before? I thought it was pretty cool. So Dr. Gawande, who others might know, um, thought about, um, and his uh, collaborators out up in Massachusetts thought that it was reasonable to think about that surgical teams do not have a routine reliable measure of patient condition at the end of an operation, and thought that maybe if we had a better idea of what that is, we might make better determinations about what the post-operative outcome uh, might become. And I thought they went about this in a very smart way. Um, so they came up with what they call the surgical APGAR score, which is analogous to uh, the score that Virginia APGAR uh, developed uh, many years ago. And it's a 10-point surgical outcome score that came out of multiple data points, and I'll come back to how they came to this. And they used three factors, a 10-point score to look at estimated blood loss, lowest mean arterial pressure, and lowest heart rate for patients. And they looked at those patients who had 
low APGAR scores, of course, were those patients who needed more close attention and were in the category of patients who developed more complications after surgery, the worst outcomes after surgery. So in their doing this uh, study, they looked retrospectively at patients who had a colectomy. And colectomies happen to be the patient group, the group from the surgical uh, care improvement project, uh, sorry, from this clip where they had pulled the data to say these are the patients that are most likely to have a ser- sequence of serious complications after surgery. And from that group, they looked at 303 patients retrospectively, and then they applied this surgical APGAR score to a group of, of, um, a group of, um, of colectomy patients prospectively, and they found a reasonable correlation between the group that's there. So the patients with the lower scores had a greater risk of uh, perioperative uh, poor outcomes. 63% had uh, more, out, more poor outcomes than others that did not. And their threshold that they're using, and more studies are starting to use, are an APGAR of less than four. I thought it was pretty smart. They also went and prospectively applied their same uh, scoring system to 776 patients undergoing general or vascular surgery, and they looked at their same APGAR scores. And again, the, the, the risk of complications was weighted towards those patients who had lower APGAR scores based upon using this uh, the system for scoring patients. So, of course, when I saw surgical APGAR score, I wanted to know a little bit more about it. So, uh, one is that um, the major complications that they were looking at were the risk of death, acute renal failure, bleeding requiring units of blood, more than four units uh, within a 72-hour period, period after surgery, cardiac arrest requiring CPR. You can see all the factors listed there that are perioperative poor outcomes that have been mapped. And again, looking at the surgical APGAR score, those patients with scores of zero to four, a larger number of those patients had complications, and luckily not a huge group of patients had complications, and then less and less for those that had higher APGAR scores based upon using um, blood loss, lowest heart rate, and lowest um, blood pressure. Um, The second um, uh, uh, study that I found related to this was using the surgical APGAR score is strongly associated with intensive care unit admission after high-risk intra-abdominal surgery. And this makes sense because this applies to that subset of patients. So they looked at patients from 2003 to 2010 in an academic medical center. They used a larger cohort of over 8,000 patients. And again, they found a strong association between the surgical APGAR score and the decision to admit a patient to the intensive care unit. So I thought that this one, uh, again, from my colleagues at Anesthesiology and Critical Care, uh, thoughtfully looked back at the information that another group had defined from from, uh, the, from the same hospital. So then another one is uh, thinking about patients, how you decide about patients who might have an unplanned ICU admission or require ICU care after. So this group looked at AIMS's anesthesia information management systems, which is the electronic anesthesia record, and they looked at time points within surgery. At the time of scheduling the surgery, three hours, two hours, and one hour before case end and at case end. And they thought that it might be sensible to have time markers to look in at the anesthesia record and the perioperative care in order to pull out data that may say this patient warrants a little bit more close attention or a little bit more ability to assess whether it would be appropriate to bring this patient into the ICU. And so the factors that they looked at are multiple. They're all listed here, 26 of them. But the things that I put here, um, the ones that had a lot of correlation, which we already know, emergency case status, 
um, if there was a need for any amount of hemodynamic support, no matter what it was, no matter what presser, if the patient required an arterial line at any point in their care, meaning that the decision to support needed another piece of information to help decide what the care needed to be. And then uh, some of the intraoperative labs, such as, of course, a pH less than 7.2. Okay, that's a joke. And then, and then a pH less than 7.0. Uh, but you can see all the parameters that they looked at in order to, to address whether this... Uh, this would be a reasonable way of looking at the patient's care. And then the other things that they looked at, they looked at multivariate predictors of unplanned post-op ICU care, um, how many uh, red cell units, which particular presser was used, um, whether they had an arterial line within a certain time interval, what the heart rate response may be, what the mean arterial pressure episodes of less than 65 might be. And again, this group, again, suggested that maybe because we have electronic anesthesia records in some settings, you can have time points where somebody would, uh, would be able to look into the record and address whether at these various time points and putting all this information together, if I'm requested to look at a patient for the ICU, can these points give me an eye into what the issues might be and whether I need to look more closely at this patient because they might eventually need ICU care. So um, these are just hints to some suggestions to thinking about patient care, but this is my summary again, the handoffs and transitions of care, records review, pain management, prophylaxis, Measuring the difficult airway, fluid management, early recognition of postoperative complications, and allocation of resources, I think, is our biggest challenge once we decide that a patient needs to be in the unit. And, uh, and I'll take any questions, discussion, or comments. So, um, it's, it's kind of funny. The last, uh, it's the surgical APGAR score. At what point did they measure, did they take those values? Because that last... Um, study that you presented actually makes a lot of sense to have it sort of sequentially because as that patient's care evolves and their status evolves, it's good to know those trends, but right. the one time... Those were all post-operative values at the end of surgery, and then okay. they correlated it back with those patients who had poor outcomes. And so they thought it was a reasonable way of looking at outcomes. They didn't recommend necessarily right. ICU care, but they recognized that some of those patients may need closer monitoring after their surgery right. was complete. It's kind of... Uh, interesting that that um, unplanned a risk for unplanned ICU admission is the receipt of uh, epinephrine intraoperatively. That's pretty <laughs> well. That's to bold to ha have them get epinephrine and not anticipate um, ICU. Well, but stay. that's a very interesting thing because yeah. you know you'll find sometimes that I would think that anytime I need to do that, but sometimes yeah. the reason may be a smaller reason or the reason may be a larger reason. I can't think of a small reason to give epinephrine. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. That's right. <laughs> So how do you know, um, so in being a non-surgeon and non-anesthesiologist myself, um, for the surgical sort of inflammatory cascade that ensues, and it clearly it depends on that specific patient's problems, but in general, um, when do you start seeing that inflammatory cascade starting to sub subside, and at what point do you, um, in terms of a volume management standpoint, decide to initiate uh, diuresis to maybe help some of that fluid removal um, or expedite it? Or do you do that at all? Um, well, it, it truly depends. And so um, it depends upon, so if it's just a routine, clean, nothing has happened to you, which is not anything that the ICU sees, uh, surgery, and only the surgery was the only injury 
deliberate injury that has occurred to the patient. Most people will say around day two or three, the patient starts to mobilize volume and the inflammatory process has changed itself, meaning the, uh, you know, the, um, the tissue barriers have become, are more intact, there's less leakage, there's less, there's less response to the inflammatory response that was created earlier. Um, some will say around day three. Um, but every patient's different. And unfortunately, if you have a patient with renal failure or chronic kidney disease or acute kidney injury, their ability to respond, make that change is not quite seen or recognized the same way. Uh, if the patient's still infected or the surgical wound is still posing a problem, it will definitely be that way. I would say that most would say around day three, you can consider if it is appropriate to do so based upon where they are. Most patients, if all end organs function well, they will carry out the response without our help. Uh, but so often we're so tempted to rush their care on that we initiate things that may be counterproductive to where they really are in time. Other surgical uh, patients are kind of fun again. I mean, I guess mm -hmm. with anything in medicine, you mm -hmm. think, you know, when they present the uh, hospital, you know, what was the, the way you mentioned reassess, reassess, reassess. Mm -hmm. You know, what was the problem that caused them to originally come here, and what are the what's the sort of natural history of that problem? Right. Then we intervene this surgical um, aspect of of their uh, with the surgical aspect of their care, and then what are the potential benefits? complications of that intervention right. and then so it creates this whole new sort of uh, natural history yes, uh, of the disease and it, really does. Um, and it really makes it a, a fun patient I think from it does uh, to it take does. care of yeah. um, anything else you guys okay all right thanks Dr. Okay.